We're back. Gracias uh, por su paciencia, hermanos y hermanas. Uh, wait, did I just say hermanas y her uh, hermanas y hermanos? Uh, we're we've been we've been trying to get this up for for about a month. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we just recorded it this week, but we've been we've been trying to get back on the. Uh, I think you guys uh, on the grind. On the grind? No, like back up in the air on the ground. I don't know. Um, well, you are listening to Spanglish Seminary. Yes, Spanglish Seminary. It's a podcast centered on la experiencia latina in the church. Sobre the space between Spanish y inglés, Catholics y aleluyas, Latin America y el norte. And you can find us on Twitter at Spanglish underscore SEM and both on uh, Instagram and Facebook, Spanglish Seminary. Yes, yeah, Spanglish Seminary. Um, so, yeah, we did have some technical issues. Um, we ended up having to move our podcast over to Anchor. Uh, which is a free uh, podcasting platform. It's the best way I can describe it. It's like Twitter for podcasts. You can actually like, if you're listening through the app, you can clap. There's a button to clap in in the middle of like certain what you know. If you're hearing something you're certain liking, sections, yeah. yeah, certain sections, and we'll hear it, and other people will hear it as they listen. And then also you can send us voice messages through the app. So if you follow Spanglish Seminary, you know, and you there's something that you liked. Or something that you disliked, you can send us a message right through the app, and we can transfer that over and reply, play your message, and reply to you in a, in another podcast episode. So that's something that's awesome that I'm looking forward. Hopefully, some of y'all will download the app uh, Anchor, and you know, make a. It's basically again, it's Twitter for uh, Twitter for podcasts is the best way um, to describe it. But yeah, we we had some technical issues, you know, and and then also my schedule on my end, I ended up finally graduating. From seminary um so you know this previous month was just a busy month so we got an extra long special episode for y'all yeah uh, it wasn't on purpose but it was a really good conversation that we had um and then what else what else would they what they need to do roger uh, they actually have to uh, subscribe to the apple podcast as well yeah we we had some issues with that and transferring over with anchor so you might have to del delete the the subscription that you have now and you know find us again on apple Podcasts and resubscribe yes. um just to be sure or you can follow us on anchor as well uh we'll be available on all all, all media forms mm -hmm. um so what was what was different about this episode uh we had a co-host and uh, the co-host name was david Hymas. david Hymas. he was here he was the second episode of, of last last semester yeah, slash season he was yeah so he he was we did the mestizaje episode with him and he was gracious enough to uh, ask his professor um if uh, she would come along for an for an interview on spanglish seminary and so uh, uh dr magallanes graciously um graciously gave us her time to do it and um So her name is Sofia Magallanes, and she's an assistant professor of theology and biblical studies at Life Pacific College. Uh, she has earned her BA degree in biblical studies from Azusa Pacific University, an MA in biblical studies from APU, and an MA in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a PhD in divinity with an emphasis in Hebrew scriptures slash Old Testament from the University of Edinburgh. She kind of talks about her journey a little bit. Um, as well, so she she specializes in Hebrew poetry and wisdom, uh, wisdom literature, Old Testament studies, theology, and Hebrew and Greek. So you know it's really exciting the conversation. You know we were gonna have a conversation 
we did have a, a pretty long conversation about James Cone and the impact that James Cone had and ended up having a really in-depth conversation about, uh, you know, Latino, Latina, Latinx theology and contextual theology. Um, and so, we, you know, we begin, we begin as we always begin, uh, asking her to share how her academic theological journey began. So I hope you all enjoy. And uh, shout out to Roger for the editing skills again. So thank you for this. Uh, anything you'd like to add, Roger? Yeah, I hope you enjoy. Hope you enjoy and send us a message on Anchor and we can reply to you on the next episode as well. So thank you. having me on Juan and David um yeah um I'm just a locally grown uh, I guess theologian I don't want to toot my own <laughs> horn or anything but um I my theological journey started um really young because um my parents grew up well they raised me in kind of like Half of it was strict old school Pentecostal church, and then the other half was kind of victory outreach kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Like I grew up in basically Cholo <laughs> church, um, like half of my life, and then um, old school, very legalistic Pentecostal, the other half of my life. Um, and so uh, when I was around 12 years old, I went to my first youth convention, and I heard the testimony of, I think you know him, uh, Reverend Dr. Isaac mm. Anales. Yes. Uh, he used to be the head of the Hispanic Studies Program. When it wasn't Centro Latino, it was Hispanic Studies Program at Fuller Seminary. And so this was like 1992, which was the same year of the L.A. Mm. riots. And I grew up uh, around the corner from where the Rodney King beating actually happened. I grew up in Pacoima, and it happened in Lake Gutierrez. So I remember it very, very well. But it was that summer um, that I went to this youth convention, and I heard um, Dr. Canales' uh, testimony where the Lord rescued him, and he ended up, like, he was this high school dropout, and then he ended up getting into college and then going to seminary and getting a Ph.D. in divinity. And I heard that as a 12-year-old, and I got... I want to do that. You know, uh, if God can do that with somebody who didn't even finish high school, like he can use me and I can get my PhD in theology or divinity. Um, wow. But it didn't come really easy because um, during like from age 16 to 18, I was in a very deep faith crisis where I even abandoned the faith for a little bit. Like I knew I had some experiences that God had, like definitely things beyond my rationality, like I couldn't explain it, that I knew that God had captured my heart or what I was calling God had captured my heart or something had happened to me experientially. But um, being in a very large LAUSD high school where there are like three, 3,500 people being bused into this one little high school in Van Nuys, mm -hmm. California, 
um, it really rocked my faith. I had people asking me questions. There were people who spoke, well, there were students that spoke over 13 different languages at that school. And I just, I encountered a lot of different worldviews and it, so for about two, almost three years, I just, I let go of everything that I ever knew. I abandoned all faith and all presuppositions as much as I could. Um, and I became really hungry. I almost flunked out of high school because I would read philosophy books or world religion books and I wouldn't do my homework. <laughs> um, but when I was 18, I finally, I came back to the, what I would call Christian faith because um, there was a time where I'm like, okay, let's say God does exist. How do I know that he's actually Judeo-Christian God? And so just having to deconstruct and then reconstruct, um, it was a very long <laughs> journey. But by the time I uh, was 18 years old, so by the way, I'm number six out of seven girls. My dad's from Juarez, Chihuahua, mm. Mexico, and my mom is from East LA. And they, like I said, they, the Lord rescued them out of the gang culture. Like they weren't involved in gangs, but that's where they got all their drugs. And that's where all their cousins and brothers mm -hmm. um, were involved. And um, so my parents have a radical conversion story. Um, and they had this, they're very old school Pentecostal. They wanted me to just uh, go to LABI. They just wanted me to go to Bible college. And I had gotten into Azusa Pacific University mm -hmm. and they couldn't understand why I would even want to go to a university if, um, if all I was going to do is study Bible. And then I, even the first day that I went to college, this was 1998, my dad dropped me off. He was all mad because I made that decision. And he said, as soon as you get a boyfriend, I'm going to stop paying for your college because mm -hmm. why should I pay for you to be a wife and a mother? You know? Um, so, yeah, that started my journey. Okay, but, Sophia. So well, you talk about your dad and 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 kind of the boyfriend thing and theology how have um how has um you as a latina growing up in a, a latino kind of uh pentecostalism how have you managed to move up not only in your studies but in in the church in influence and 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 even learning more about scripture and 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 our, our tradition, how has, how has that experience been for you as a Latina? It's been hard, <laughs> to mm. say the least. Um, so that first day that I was dropped off at Azusa Pacific, um, it's just branded in my head. And actually, Gabe Villas was one mm. of the first people that I met. We were at the health center trying to, like, turn in our immunization records together. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I mean, he was just, like, fiery from the get-go. Um, I'm pretty soft-spoken, but then when the spirit moves, I become a totally different person. I hulk out in some ways. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like, that first day, 
Um, I need to backtrack a little bit from that because two weeks prior to that, my dad was giving a campaña. He was like, um, he was preaching. He, he was sent down to Puebla, um, Mexico, and my mom doesn't like to get on airplanes. She's never been on one even now. Um, this is like back in 1998, two weeks before I went to APU. Um, my dad preaches and my mom sings and they kind of do these like evangelistic campañas. Mm. Um, and she was supposed to go down there with him and I went instead. So it was like two weeks. I'm there. I sing. My dad preaches. And the people down there are ready to give me a church plant. So the Pentecostal <laughs> thing to do is to say, this is of the Lord. I'm just going to, me, 17 years old, I'm just going to stay there and become a pastor down in Puebla because that yeah, sounds like exactly. the best thing to do. Um, but I knew specifically that my, like, nobody had ever taught, taught me that you're supposed to apply to as many colleges as possible. Hmm. Or how to fill out a FAFSA. Because mm. nobody in my family had ever gone to college. So I only right. applied to APU. And I was just like, I got in. And <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to pay for this. But apparently my dad's going to stop paying for this. You know. Right. If, you know, if ever I should, you know, be a woman and want to yeah so so was it was it at APU that you started to be more serious about about the bible about hermeneutics or did that come later okay so the weird thing is like i knew like i had the pipe dream of when i was a 12 year old to do theology you right. know and like i was like but i still had that guilt of like maybe i should be a missionary I should do, mm. and so it was really confusing for me because I just turned down the very thing that I'm supposed to be aspiring to, you mm. know, in order to go to school. And um, so I got in, and I knew that God wanted me to be at APU, and so I turned the the church plant thing down. My dad's angry at me. I don't even know how I'm going to get into housing. I get there, my roommate's really racist. I'm a oh, light-skinned. No. Latina and my and one of my roommates was amazing from San Diego and the other one was not so amazing um, mm. and I cried every day and went to the oh. chapel every day <laughs> um, so wow. but it's one of those weird things oh so I was there and I was a Christian ministries major and then I realized I couldn't stand any of my Christian ministries classes <laughs> because like <laughs> All the stuff was outdated, like all the resources were outdated, and like they were writing for people back in the late eighties, early nineties. Yep. And here I am at the turn of the century, and I'm like, okay, am I even going to be a youth pastor? Am I going to be a pastor, or what am I going to do with my life? Um, the one class that I loved was biblical studies. It was my introduction to, um the Bible and it was uh, called Exodus Deuteronomy hmm. and I remember being angry because it deconstructed my theology once again hmm. I had just barely started coming back to the idea that 
I believe in the Christian God again, mm-hmm. like for sure. Um, and then all of a sudden I couldn't give any Sunday school answers mm. and the anger turned into freedom. Mm. And yeah. I, I, I refer to that point as I went to the dark side. I, I became a biblical studies major instead of a Christian <laughs> ministries major. Yeah, that's, um, <laughs> yeah. that was probably radical for uh, APU, right? <laughs> or at that time. <laughs> Well, also, well, for me, like back in the day, like I was just so scared of like losing my faith again, Um, especially because of the guilt. That's the weird thing is like there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt, like not believing the right things in the right way and all Mm -hmm. that. Um, But I remember my Exodus Deuteronomy teacher made it okay for life to be ambiguous for the Bible to be ambiguous Hmm. and just to like embrace that. And, um, so I, after I declared my major, I took a course in Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature from Dr. Gerald Wilson. And then he ended up becoming kind of like a, um, he was there for me the way my father was not. Mm. And it wasn't because my father didn't want to be there for me. He just he didn't have the worldview for it at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I I know that now, especially because right after undergrad in 2002, I went to Fuller, and I, it was my first encounter with Juan Martinez, mm. and um, from and. He met me once, and then he met me twice afterwards because um, I ended up leaving Fuller after one year of being there because I was so stubborn. I I wanted to go deeper into the book of Job with the people that I knew who would give me access to the Hebrew text right away Mm -hmm. in a directed study kind of way. Uh, And it was John Hartley and Gerald Wilson who had taken me under his wing in my undergrad years. Um, Mm. But Juan Martinez, when I met him, he, he told me that I shouldn't be so resentful towards my father because he, he just does not have that worldview and I need to be patient. Mm. And that as I walk in my calling, then God will deal with him and grow him up into the position that he needs to be in. And he wasn't wrong because um, 20 years later, my dad is preaching from the pulpit that um, we're not preaching the full gospel if we don't let women preach. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and it took a long time for him to get there, but it, <laughs> yeah. he's, I mean, I wouldn't say that he's like a hardcore feminist, but he's an egalitarian for sure. Yeah. I, I wonder what the the impact of um, some positive male um, role models can do in the future of the Latino church uh, and that, that what's happening and we're seeing how the Latino church or the Latinx church, um, that, that it's so complicated, our relationships uh, among genders. And I mean, how, I bet that wasn't the, you know, the first or the last time that you've, 
you've had to encounter difficulties uh, with men. And, you know, you even went all the way to Scotland to study and, uh, and kind of really dig deep there and, and do your PhD work. Tell, tell us more of why Scotland and, and what is uh, SoCal Latina uh you know even for latinos like i i would never think of scotland so that's uh, how much i know of of the world of theology but man what yeah. what was that like well it's just like any other any other part of my narrative it's been the um apply to one school and then pray about it and then go um <laughs> Just because nobody <laughs> taught me anything other than that. Um, but when it came to going to the UK to do my PhD, uh, it had to do with John Hartley um, at APU and um, Dr. Golden Gay, John Golden Gay mm -hmm. um, at Fuller. Um, so right after my undergrad, I went to Fuller, then I put Fuller on hold did a two-year degree in Bible in one year wow. um, at APU. Huh. Um, then my mentor passed away. Mm. And um, there were a lot of other complications. I don't want to bore anybody with all that. But huh. um, I ended up going back to Fuller and finishing what I started. And I got into the PhD program at Edinburgh in 2006. But I... I put it on hold for a year hmm. because I was scared out of my mind. Um, the distance, the, the, the challenge of different professors, the, what, what was scary about it? If I could ask. Okay. Um, let me put, <laughs> let me put this out there. Um, so I have five older sisters, one younger sister. Um, everybody did the right thing basically a latina i don't know if it's still the same expiration date now but back in the day oh a latina's uh expiration date for getting married and having kids was like 25 mm. um and i felt it and i was mm. i was yeah. about 25 years old when i got into the program um and i just felt like my whole world was collapsing so it's one thing to go through a faith crisis and it's, and you feel that existential angst, but it's all in your mind. It's different when you actually take a leap of faith and it, your whole, it's not just your worldview, it's the implications of your worldview. It's like your whole world feels like it's going to, like I said, collapse mm. in on itself. And so, um, and there's this whole thing of like, who am I? Like, where is my identity? What kept me going forward is that I, my mother taught me how to be a woman of prayer. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so constantly praying, um, walking through those doors. And it just became very apparent that I applied to this program in Edinburgh and the doors were open and there was money there. Hmm. And I needed to walk through that door. Um, it was very scary, not only for me, but also for my whole family. 
especially because I couldn't share that part of myself with my father. Mm-hmm. And my dad, I remember him saying, you're going to go to Scotland? Why? What are you going to do there? And I told him, I, I love to do Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature. And he's like, what? You read Hebrew? And I said, Dad, I've been, I've been <laughs> wow. doing that since I was 18. Wow. And I was already like 25 going on 26. And he's just like, show me. And he handed me the Hebrew Bible. And I did. And then he's like, okay, we better save up then. <laughs> and my dad is That's a awesome. roofer. Well, he's always been a an evangelist a preacher a pastor but he because he had such a big family he not only supported the seven of us girls but also his extended family like he has um 12 brothers and sisters that he brought over from mexico and so he's always just been working super hard his whole life hmm. um he went to uh la facultad de Teolo- um yeah the Foursquare theology yeah, the four school, square, yeah. and he okay. so he would work super hard as a roofer during the day. He'd go to Bible school and then he would study to preach at least twice a week. Hmm. And so, like, he taught me how to study. Basically, it's kind of funny because out of <laughs> yeah. all of the, all of my sisters, I'm the most like him, but uh, <laughs> he didn't have the worldview for that. that wow. You know, so, wow. but he ended up getting one of those reward programs. So for the whole year that I waited, uh, just to get enough courage and to work, work hard to save up, um, he was using his his credit card to get miles. He used it for his, uh, his business. He got a business credit card, and he ended up getting enough miles for me to make my first trip to and from Scotland. That's great. Um, that first year. Wow. Yeah. That is a beautiful story. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm inspired. No, but that's just hearing that and hearing, hearing about your, you know, your mother and, and prayer and about your father. Um, it, it just, it reminded me of this quote, uh, I was looking for a Sandra Cisneros quote the other day, and I I ran into something that she mentioned about Latino culture. She was, I, I think it was specifically Mexican culture, but I think it applies to all Latinos that that we don't realize how matriarchal uh, Latino culture is mm-hmm. as well. And hearing about your mom and and and, and prayer and mm-hmm. I don't know, I can't the Pentecostal me comes out and can't think of just the spirit in humility working in the background and all those things in prayer and you know moving us towards all that so just that that is a, that is a great story um oh sorry no 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 that's good that's good so you so you came yeah. in to challenge to the challenge of understanding yourself more that led that that led you to give you um the courage to go into a phd in scotland um and I, that that is so authentically a, a, such a good expression of who you are and even how you teach and 
for for the listeners out there, I'm currently, you know, taking a class with Dr. Sofia. And um, <laughs> hey, hey, no, this has been a highlight of my year. And and the reason awesome. uh, not only does that authenticity show, but um, the importance of knowing your story and 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 how important some some of these struggles are to us. And I I I want to highlight in today's podcast uh, is to is also to to talk about the story of James Cone. And what he did through uh, Black Liberation Theology. And it, I, I did not expect it, Dr. Sophia, going into that f- class on Tuesday to see the face of Dr. James Cohn and you intentionally giving 30 minutes of your lecture time, of the class time, for us to speak on the significance of Dr. Cohn. And that was so enriching for me. And in a sense, it helps me so much to to come to grips with losing a giant in a sense of life uh, in, in Dr. Cohn in theology and how, how he uh, mattered to us Latinos and Latinas as well. Um, tell me a little bit, a, a bit about what led you to do that. Well, thank you so much for asking because um, he's a part of what helped me for me to have a context for my own self, to have a place at the table um, when it comes to theology and biblical studies. Um, Sometimes in in the academy, people look at me and they say that I have, that I'm insightful. And then there are other people who just don't get it because Mm -hmm. I don't, I I provide a different perspective. Um, And it's just been a mixed bag the whole time, but I, I, I've always had that motivation of I'll show them kind of thing. Um, I have that drive. But before I even get to that, the first time I was ever introduced to James Cohn was when I was a sophomore at college. And my teacher was a Mennonite um, PhD student under Glenn Stassen at the time at Fuller. And he was very intentional on how he taught theology. Um, He not only exposed us to some essays or some excerpts from uh, Dr. Cohn's work, but also one of our textbooks was called Narratives of the Vulnerable God. Hmm. And then also reading a little bit more of Jürgen Moltmann and um, even some of the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they all kind of go together. And I don't think that people understand the impact not only of James Cone, but black theology in general, um, that we wouldn't have people like Bonhoeffer and Moltmann if there was not an exposure to black theology. And even um, Bonhoeffer had written about his exposure to the black Christ when he was in New York uh, during one of his um, yep. mm-hmm. his trips to the United States. And so I don't think that we would have a lot of the writings of the Confessing Church or even that shift in mainstream German school theology if mm. it had not been for the African-American voice. Yes. And so I, what I'm tired of is that people 
treat contextual theology as if it is a pet theology or it's not a part of the greater history and shift and even the future of theology. Um, especially these past uh, 15 years, I would say that I've had to understand that it's not just that I have a right to come to this table, mm-hmm. but actually that what God is doing is he's putting things, it's the, it's the idea of justice. He's making things right again. Yes. Where if we're all being really honest with ourselves, all theology is contextual theology. Yes, ma'am. Come on. Even biblical theology. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's part of the reckoning. It's not just, like, putting one group over another or adding more voices. It's just, it's kind of dismantling these ideologies. These, what I, I what I say is they're kind of like the principalities of darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're the people, you know, it's this, it's a part of the enemy's trajectory mm. to keep people oppressed and to keep people from knowing Christ in his fullness. And so for me, whenever I'm in a a context to to either teach or preach, I take that very seriously because I do believe it's a part of spiritual warfare. It is casting down every imagination that elevates itself above Christ. And and the thing is we don't hear that enough and I would say our our traditional or our everyday Latino, Latina churches, I, because liberation theology and this, I, this notion of reading theology through the lens of, uh, uh, of, uh, of helping the poor and the oppressed, knowing that that's a tradition coming from also Latin America as well as here yeah. in the U.S. through Black liberation, through James Cone and womanist theology, why do we continue to silence maybe or be ignorant of this such empowering theology that, that could help us? What, what, what have you seen or what have you read, Dr. Sophia? Why are we not, why is this stuff not getting to our churches? Well, one thing is that there's a fear of, becoming re-Catholicized um, or like ba- basically returning back to our Catholic roots. And I think mm-hmm. there, especially in mm-hmm. a, the evangelical and Pentecostal context, there's that fear. But also there is this, I think I can only speak, well, let me speak first of Pentecostalism and then of evangelicalism. Yes, ma'am. And then about, okay, so first Pentecostals, have tried so hard to legitimate themselves mm. as an actual, like, I guess, orthodox, quote, unquote, orthodox movement mm. in this past, especially the last 50 to 60 years. And with that, we've taken on, whether it's Latino or white Pentecostalism, it's taken on white evangelicalism as its, I guess, cloak of legitimacy. And um, with that is the negation of what the Pentecostal movement is. 
which yes. is basically like it started out as a pacifist movement. I don't know if you under, if you knew that, but also as an, a multicultural and global movement, hmm. as well as an mm-hmm. egalitarian, dare I say, feminist movement because of the empowerment <laughs> of the Holy Spirit of both men and women was mm-hmm. an onset. Um, so like with all of like, the roots of this movement, they've all kind of been pushed aside for the sake of legitimacy. Hmm. And what do you think that is? What what's pushing us aside? I I mean, is it white supremacy? Is it patriarchy? Is it um, this fear of uh, leftist Marxist similarities? Or or are are maybe Dr. Sophia? Are we just not? Um, are we just not sharing this enough to? Um, to inquiring minds like you uh, in, in schools like APU that were that were given a cone book that you know in that started this and this this desire to understand how God is close to the oppressed. Well, that brings me to now. Now that I've already spoken of what I think is wrong in Pentecostalism in mm. the United States, let me move to evangelicalism Vamos. Um, that very much evangelical has become synonymous with what it is to be a right wing Republican American mm-hmm. and it's been like this for a long time but now it's even more polarized mm. and I think that at this point I, I don't know but all the Pentecostal institutions, but the one that I work for, we're reevaluating what it is to be Pentecostal. Mm. We no longer yeah. have this idea that Pentecostal and evangelical are, are synonymous anymore. Wow. And what what are some of the markers that you guys are using or metrics that are differentiating Pentecostalism and evangelicalism? Well, for us, as at least the Foursquare Church and our yeah. Foursquare Institution, um, for better or for worse, my institution is kind of setting that precedent. We have this idea of a progressive um, Pentecostalism, mm. where where the Spirit is moving, where we sense the Spirit is moving, in keeping with what we see as Scripture, is to move forward to encounter. Um, not only encounter, but to look to our global brothers and sisters inside and outside of the United States for guidance Mm. as to, like, it's not just that the spirit is moving in the United States. The spirit has been moving upon all flesh, male and female. And I would say, and everything in between, sorry, maybe I'm a little bit too progressive, but I'm just saying our priority as a Pentecostal institution is, yes, Bible, not sola scriptura, spirit and in truth. We're called to, yes. to, to go forward in spirit and in truth and Come to worship, on. be worshiping God in those two things. Mm. Um and our challenge has been, what does scripture say 
and where is the spirit moving? Hmm. And it's different. It's making us differentiate ourselves from what's happening in the public discourse in the United States, American evangelicalism. And which basically, like I said, the problem right now is that it's now synonymous with a certain movement instead of finding unity and diversity. Juan, I know you want to jump in. That's really, well, that's just really encouraging to hear. I mean, on my, on my end, um, I, I I think we spoke earlier where I just, you know, graduated from, uh, it's, it was, it's a church of God seminary Mm -hmm. uh, in Cleveland, Tennessee called, you know, uh, Pentecostal theological seminary. And just meeting a lot of professors there. Um, yeah. Uh, Dr. Cheryl Bridges Johns, who I joke around that, you know, she's, I tell her she's my spiritual mother and she's the reason, you know, I, uh, one of the reasons that I realized why I'm Pentecostal and don't identify as evangelical and knowing the difference between the mm-hmm. two, it's, I think, one of the things that David touched on is very important for Pentecostals to understand that is this is why and, and understanding the roots of of that um for latino pentecostals the the it, you you touched on that as far as there's a there's a fear because we we are a colonized people mm-hmm. and catholicism and christianity was forced upon mm-hmm. us um the wrestling of how do we decolonize from ourselves mm-hmm. can you decolonize from yourself when you you come you're a mestizo like you you mm-hmm. know what I mean we come from we come from these two things yeah. right and and to live in that and and understand that where we're both uh I'm, now I'm inspired by you know Justo Gonzalez Mañana mm-hmm. right where we're, we're both uh you know Esau and Jacob at mm-hmm. the same time or we're both you know we're we're just we're we're mestizo and and to to walk in that um to to the, those are the things that we must wrestle with and and I think it helps understand how to how to um be in the world but not of it and, and I'm glad that uh, there's and, that and, theology, but I'm just gonna be quite yeah. frank with you. I think yeah, that yeah. where most people live still in our communities, especially in the United States, is that the there still is that inferior inferiority complex, yes. No, yeah, yeah. So that that's that's where I was, where there's definitely a disconnect with the academy and the local, like either classical Pentecostal church or the local storefront mm-hmm. church, or mm-hmm. you know, there there is a disconnect. And I, I mean, the the reason this podcast exists is to try to bridge that disconnect, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And and so it it's it's just I, I sound it's exciting to me to hear what you know your journey. And to hear that I'm not alone mm-hmm. in that, and 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 to hear that there's this 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 strange idea of like you know your community kind of sends you out, but not sends you out, kind of kicks you out, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And and to come back, how how do we come back uh, to to be faithful within? Like I've I've decided to come back within my own tradition, yeah. and and try to dig a well mm-hmm. there. Uh, just because I don't, I don't know where else I would, I would belong. Does that make, no, does that make I, sense? And I'm yeah, hearing I did the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
and I, and I'm hearing that from you, and and so that's why it's it's inspiring, it's exciting to hear. Hey, no soy el único loco, you know. Now that I'm calling you crazy, but uh, it's it's okay. I'm there's, there's definitely <laughs> no. It's like I don't mean any. You know, uh, my professors don't hear what I'm not saying. Like, like I like um, in a it, it's inspiring to see that you're you're going into it full speed ahead, and and I'm I'm ready to learn as far as you know uh, on my end I've learned why I'm Pentecostal mm-hmm. uh, but also you know all the all the things that are wrong right all the things that are wrong within Pentecostalism but uh, what you touched on early on you know from a, from Azusa Street and that the, the scandal of Azusa was that here you have you know black and white and Latinos and male and female and young and old you know together worshiping god that that was the biggest bigger scandal than just speaking in tongues you know mm-hmm. and to go back to that 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 was lost very early on in maybe the first 20 years mm-hmm. you know uh i mean you know this i'm not, i'm just i'm just no it's you know, all good it's exciting to hear it's exciting to hear that and and um yeah uh, and so i i the next step on my end uh would be to continue to learn and expand uh i mean for for the first time I was able to read from Anglicans mm-hmm. to read from, you know, Catholic theologians to read, you know, stuff that I was told, they stay away from that. Cause it's going to, you know, that's a perder. Exactly. So, uh, and I don't mean to take over, but I'd, I'd love no, to hear do. more, more of that. And I, I kind of wanted to add to that because it's, it's inspiring to hear, um, uh, you know, your, your, your point of view, because it's, it, it's it's more of a it's a very long-winded amen on my end is what i'm saying no no, no it's good <laughs> yeah. um i sometimes i skim over things because i just kind of assume um knowledge like sometimes i can get lost in thought and i i'm trying to make connections and then i forget that not everybody like will know and understand what i'm trying to say but you you totally articulated it in exactly the perfect way yeah thank you yeah, but um, going I'm back... excited that I'm not alone. That's, <laughs> I, I don't mean to make it about myself, but no, it's, it's exciting and and keeping with the same the same. We're talking about Pentecostals. We're talking, um, yes, yeah, evangelicals. evangelicals. We're talking about let, let's bring it to where we are today. Where we, um, this year, we got in the Trump presidency. James Cone, Doctor James Cone, is now. In a sense, uh, is uh, he's not with us, but his his legacy is, is going to enter a new phase. How does can you tell us, uh, Dr. Sophia? How does that how does that impact us as Latinos? You know, you did it in your class. I and and other Latinos that I know and Latinas and Latinx folks expressed our condone not just condolences, but knowing that they. James Cohen and his contribution to theology with black liberation theology um, was important to us. How, where do you think we go from here as Latinos or Latinas or Latinx? Okay. um, Thank you. So I think the only thing that I really said in our prior conversation about this was that um, black theology and in particular, the articulation of James, James Cohen's, um, Theology, black theology, um, it provides a naming. Hmm. There's power in naming hmm. um, what, 
what is needed, what is necessary. Um, but more than naming it, it provides a more robust view of of who Christ is. And I, I really feel as if um, this next wave of and the move of the Holy Spirit is all about incarnation and embodiment. Mm-hmm. See more about and that. I, yeah. Okay. Um, so now that we have a theology for it, now that we have, um, it's been addressed not only in the articulation of Black theology and liberate Latin, Latino or Latinx uh, liberation theology, as well as, you know, feminist, womanist, mm-hmm. and mujerista theology. Now that we have these categories, what these categories are doing, hopefully, are removing the boundaries mm. for us. And I really feel as if there are going to continue, the Lord is already raising up theologians, biblical scholars, church historians. He's raising up educated Latinos um, or Latinx people and people of color. And there's this great movement where it's not just about, it's not just about the experience of embodiment. It's not just about the mystical experience and even uh, different things that came out of it. It's also, um, we're taking it a step further. I, I believe that the Lord is calling and raising theologians up within these communities to combat the powers, as um, Yoder talks about. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. But actual, like these are the these are the powers, the political powers, and the structures, the things, the ideologies that elevate themselves over Christ. But also, we have people who are not only being educated for to to fight in that arena. Where there also are people who are called into politics and into the local church. Mm. So we need people on all fronts. Mm-hmm. And I really do feel as if that this movement is about providing like i'm not just talking about like embodying ideologies what i'm talking about is as we cast down these imaginations as we change the way we practice as we actually uh, are salt and light in all of these arenas and in our local churches we're going to be breaking down the boundaries between latinx church black church white church Mm. I really feel that the Lord is trying to make his body whole mm. again. Mm. And so this, with, this without blemish idea is not, um, we think of it in a very Greek way of to be without something. We think of perfection as the absence of something mm. instead of the presence of wholeness. And I, yes. I do believe that God is calling us to that wholeness this mosaic of his flesh mm-hmm. it's beautiful and what do you see the role of the local church mm-hmm. in in embodying this like uh, how how does 
what does the ecclesiology look like um, okay. to embody this? At first, it's going to look really um, forced. <laughs> yeah. But I think we need to start by communing with people who don't look like us. And I know it's a little bit different because like what you I know that the, we have in our pan latino or latinx community there's so many like we have different cultures it's multicultural by by nature yes. and they're you know we're all unified um with the language but i think even in the united states especially i think we still hide behind that um it i mean it's my my family's church is not perfect, but there's something that I do know that was of the Lord and not of them, <laughs> because if I'm being quite honest, we're racist <laughs> because it's comfortable. <laughs> it's comfortable to like, hey, we're multicultural because we we have uh, Salvadoreños and Guatemaltecos, you know, and like it's not just Mexicans. Yay, we're we're multicultural um but i what i really said i felt like wow like god surprised me by doing something with my parents um by having them go down to a mexican prison and to mexico outreach with african-american uh brothers and sisters doing their jail ministry with white and korean brothers and sisters so, you know, sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. Can, can continue? No, sure. Yeah. No, like this, this wouldn't have been from them because they don't think that way. And th- but the spirit yeah. was moving in that way. And what what popped in my mind right now is, Dr. Sophia, you could, you probably could uh, attest to this. There's a lot of us Latinos, Latinas, Latinx that are not part of the church anymore, that are mm-hmm. tired of the church, tired of what is happening to Latinos and Latinas here in the U.S., tired of the racism, the misogyny, yeah. And, yeah. and the poverty. Um, and um, we don't, the last thing we want to do is read scripture. The last thing we want to do is, is hear from um, theologians about what could be. Um, what, what, how do you do that? You teach, you teach um, undergrads, you teach in many places, how, what's inspiring people or Latinos, specifically Latinas, Latinx folks, um, to engage in this conversation and to embody this, what you're talking about? Okay, thank you. Um, that makes me very excited because when I first came back uh, from Scotland, I felt a little displaced. I felt like I needed to now relearn what it is to live in my own community. Mm. And... I thank God for a small group that I, I was I was giving a Bible study um, and the people who ended up coming were young adults from four different Latino churches that they didn't they didn't speak Spanish and they were going to college and they were about to lose faith but they still kind of wanted to explore the Bible and just providing it was just organic they came over to my my parents house 
they they ate their food and we just went through the book of Galatians together and so I mean it grew from only like early 20 somethings from my parents church to them inviting like all the different people from their college campus to come to our house to to have to duke it out <laughs> to come and really like be honest about scripture and I think what happens is that there there just needs to be a place. I think that if we're being really honest, it's it's not that we don't want to go to church. It's just that we don't we know that the way church has been done is fake. Mm. Wow. And it's not powerful for us anymore and a lot of that legalism that the older generation of the Jesus movement like complained about it's there now. Like, yeah, I may have grown up in Cholo church where people were being saved and delivered at, from drugs and alcohol, todo tatuado, you know, everything like they didn't have to yeah. change, but God was moving in their lives. Then all of a sudden fast forward 30 years and they're so legalistic they have church down to a system, hmm. um, and for the for those of us who have grown up in the church, we just we know that there's something, but it's not powerful anymore, and it's not relevant anymore. And what I what I like to do is I I like to encourage people to dismantle the thing hmm. because. For me, if the gospel had no longer has power, it's not the gospel. And a part of what I do, and sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is I go back to the first contexts of the text. Because like I said before, all theology is contextual. Even the theology of Genesis and Exodus. There, You know, a lot of times we want to rush to make them into one homogenous kind of stew. We want to turn scripture into the melting pot mm. instead of letting scripture speak each biblical book, speak on its own mm. and have that unity through the diversity in scripture. Um, even the dissonance and the apparent contradictions that we find in scripture, they it's actually beautiful because um, for me, at least, it challenges me to keep digging, to keep engaging with scripture and trying to figure it out within all the contexts that are in the text. Hmm. And when, when I do that, it challenges me to reevaluate my presuppositions about life and about God and about my own culture. So what I'm hearing from you and, and, is is this theme of power and how you said that Jesus moved. So an older generation started to complain about the powers that be in their generation, right? Uh, and, and now they grew up and now they're in power of our, our churches, our denominations, our radios, our preaching and everything. And, and, and there's a new generation, let's say millennials or Gen Xers, whatever that are, that are not buying it. Like you said, is is 
is irrelevant. And um, and so that there's this idea of a dismantling of power where I know that liberation theology and, and the testimony of Dr. James Cone with black power and black theology, how liberation theology could help us to destabilize these powers and share that power with the most disenfranchised like you like you were talking am i hearing you correctly that there needs to be this shift of power and liberation theology in a sense gives us a lens to to see that um or or what what do you say a little bit about can you say a little bit about that okay yes it does dismantle yes and but before we can even say what it does, I think I'm just going to name, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to tell you straight up what makes liberation theology so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it is the power of the incarnation. It is the power of the cross. It is the power of the God who suffers mm-hmm. with the oppressed. Wow. And that, I mean, for me, that is the core of the gospel. Somebody can, I mean, we've seen it throughout history. We have the Crusades, we have the Holocaust, we have churches backing up all of this, um, this violence, things that are antithetical to the gospel. We know that at a very gut level yep. that, you know, how can Christians back certain movements up or be complicit by the sin of omission, you know? It's happened for 2,000 years. Well, that's the power of the gospel when it becomes actual incarnation rather than the theory. Hmm. Instead of thinking about what Jesus did, actually taking seriously that that, that the claim of the gospel, the claim of Christianity is that God in Jesus Christ Hmm. is now living in solidarity, not just a conceptual solidarity, but an embodied solidarity with human suffering. Come on. And when that happens, when we actually believe that, the implications are endless. I don't see why people don't understand that the statement of that Christ is black, that Jesus is black, Jesus Christ is black, they think it's so offensive. The cross was offensive. Hmm. The fact, I mean, to Greek thought back in the first century, that would have been offensive for any deity to take on any sort of matter or human attributes and flesh. Right. Why can't we When I first heard that, yeah, when I first heard that, um, that phrase from James Cone, I just immediately thought of seeing uh, Christ in your neighbor, mm-hmm. seeing Christ in the face of your neighbor, and in the need to be in in the in the way that we need the other mm-hmm. for us to be saved. Mm-hmm. Um, that God saves us through the stranger and through the other. Um, I heard that in a sermon recently, where with um, uh, was it Stephen and the Ethiopian eunuch? Mm-hmm. And when the, the Ethiopian eunuchs walk, I mean, you're both familiar with the story, but what what is funny is that here's someone who is completely other, who's not allowed in the temple, who has no future, quote unquote, and 
he says, who, who prevents me from being baptized? Mm. And so obviously no one, right? And gets baptized. And then what's funny to me in that scripture is that immediately he, Stephen gets taken away and the eunuch leaves in, in joy. So basically let's take you out so that you don't mess him up. It's what I read, <laughs> my read, right? Wow. Let him go in joy and let me take you out of that situation so that, I mean, or even, um, uh, me, me and, and David had this conversation last last week, even um, uh, the story where, was it Peter? Yes, Peter goes into the centurion's home, centurion's home mm-hmm. and they get baptized in the spirit mid-sermon. Mm-hmm. And he goes, even they get baptized. The spirit is even baptizing them. And you just see the subversiveness throughout scripture, right? Oh, the yeah. subversive story of the other, the outsider is being allowed in and the outsider is the one if you need to find God, find them with the with the one that is maybe outside. even Pentecostal, you know, if we could say it like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the that's the right from from the the story of Babel and and uh, I think you mentioned it, uh, 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 Doctor, where uh, was it unity unity through diversity or yeah, and and seeing that right and, and that everybody heard heard mm. each other's language. Yeah. Each other's native tongue. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was contextualized, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody heard themselves. Yes. Everybody, uh, and it wasn't a separation of like we were all going to speak the same language. It was the fulfillment of the promise that through through our differences, we we can be fully who we're called to be in in Christ. Yeah. And it it's beautiful. And, and I think the moment that we start to decide who sits at the table is is the moment we we lose we lose god and and so i'm hearing all that from 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 that and and it's not um it's inspiring definitely would you what would you recommend um for someone that has never read anything from james cone where what is there a certain book that you'd recommend for people that would want to begin serious study well i would just start with um I think it was 1997. Um, let me look it up right now. I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. You could go way back and read his first yeah. one, but I think he, as he gets older, he's able to um, articulate it in more concise ways, and he's mm-hmm. had to have a lot of these conversations. So I would definitely start out, start somebody out from like 1994 to 1997 onward, mm. just because okay. um, I believe it's something as simple as, let me make sure that I have it here. Thank you for bearing with me. No, oh, that's fine. Yeah. So yeah. his first one is from 1969, Black Theology and Black Power. That might be a little bit too dense for a lot of people. So yeah. I think that they should start... Um, with a black theology of liberation, and I believe that's okay. from 1994. A black theology of liberation, mm-hmm. okay. Because I think black theology and black power, I sometimes it people are afraid uh, of that because it was it, it it could come off as very militant, and I'm not saying that we should avoid that, but if somebody really wants to understand but doesn't understand. I think to go with what he wrote in his later 
writings, it's better. Especially like when you go to the 1969 uh, writings, it's a, it, it can be a little heady for people who are not yeah. used to theology. Okay. I, I, I've heard people talking about um, the cross and the liching tree, and this was a, a yeah. fairly recent yes. book in 2011. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Black Theology Back in, in 69, Black Theology Liberation in 70. He continues mm -hmm. on through that. Uh, his most re one of the most recent is the, what w the cross and the lynching tree. I think earlier we were talking about how. Um, suffering a god who suffers with and is in solidarity with suffering is the is the god uh uh of of us as christians um and, and i know james cone was using the lynching tree to talk mm -hmm. up to to give a relevance right to the cross because uh, many times we probably have um looked at the cross as something beautiful or in, in a sense shiny or even marketable you know um, we put it on necklaces, stuff like that, and and James, Doctor James Cone, brings it to the reality of a lynching tree, especially in the context of here in the U.S. and what that means for us and our history. Um, yeah. What for Latinos? What do we look at that could be something similar to a lynching tree? Um, what yeah. What are we experiencing right now uh, here in the U.S. that that we could say God is in solidarity with our suffering? Well, I don't want to go with the obvious, but um, but before I go with the obvious, yeah. you do know that there was Latino lynching mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in our history, yeah. as well as, um, well, it's very strange, and I, I just need to put this out there. So my dad was illegal, and he was deported twice over, and um, during the the Rodney King hearings and then the subsequent riots. Mm -hmm. um, as a 12-year-old, I found out that my dad has the marks of police brutality. Wow. And he, like, he has these stitches from a time where he was just, he was beaten down. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I'm very careful about this because I know that, like, in that older time, it was just expected because mm. in some ways my dad still thinks that he's an, he was an outlaw and he deserved it. Mm. Um, and it's really strange. I don't know how many Latinos are like this or identified like this where my parents are Republicans. And so <laughs> for them to speak out against the president is unheard of yep mm -hmm. and so there's this weird tension going on today um back in the 70s or late 60s and 70s where my dad um when he crossed over those first two times um that was just what happened and you should avoid working in the factories and working out in the fields which my dad did both of those things mm -hmm. before he became a, a roofer. Um, I'm, I'm tiptoeing around this because I, I do know that the Lord 
Jesus is in solidarity with the oppressed stranger. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious. Yes. But at the same time, I don't want to um, I don't want to equate that with the cross. I know it sounds really weird. But no, I understand. Like, I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. Like, I don't want to minimize yeah. what's going on today. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know if it's the same as lynching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I mean, for a recent story that has, uh, I don't know if you've heard it, um, that there was this indigenous Guatemalan um, <laughs> that was killed by ICE. Uh, yeah. You know, um, Claudia Gomez Gonzalez, um, mm-hmm. excuse me, Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez. I really want her name to, you know, we need to say her name. Um, she, she represents a violence that is is directed at a people that that is vulnerable in our nation. And those are the migrants that are fleeing mm-hmm. from their own violence, from their countries, looking for a better opportunity. And and they come here and they get executed, like mm-hmm. cold-blooded. For me, um, for me, and, I, and you, you could have a different understanding. For me, I see that, I, I see God there. I see God mm-hmm. in, in, in the tragedy of that her life was taken at 20 years old. With her mom still in Guatemala, not knowing what to do herself, and um, yeah, right now, I mean, it's it. it I, I hate kind of saying it's cliche to talk about immigration and Latinos, but it's our reality, especially uh, those of us that live in mm-hmm. Southern California, uh, live live close to the border because this happened in Texas, and this is heartbreaking to hear. Mm-hmm. And the the fifteen hundred children that were lost. By Homeland Security, what is going on? There's doctor. There's violence happening against against our people, and I I need to know that God is somewhere and and, and doing something because honestly, there is hopelessness hopelessness creeping up more and more in, in the everyday uh, my in, in my faith at least uh, of. What does it mean to be a Christian in the U.S.? Much less, what does it mean to be a Latino or a Latina? What uh, for me to be a Latino here in the U.S.? I I hope that I'm not coming off as um, passive, and maybe I maybe I am to a certain extent. I'm. No, you're fine. I'm just. I wanted to give you my where I'm coming yeah, no. from, and I, I really want. I want you to kind of give me. I, I really want you to just kind of be very truthful about what you what you um, what you want to say. Okay, so I, for the most part, I do believe. I do believe the same in the way of that all oppression. Is experience well, like okay. For for instance, um, the first time I ever really thought about God feeling 
and suffering with the oppressed and with the suffering of humanity um, was back when I was 21. No, oh, I was like 20. And um, I was reading about the narratives of the vulnerable God. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling that God will never know what it is for me to be a woman who's been molested at a very young age or to see all the domestic violence that I've seen some of my older sisters endure Mm -hmm. um, or Mm. all of these different things. So maybe I'm so stuck in my head right now, but Mm -hmm. I I don't want to dare say that I just need to explore the nuances of it yeah. because yeah. I do believe what you're saying is true mm-hmm. that in the way that all oppression is redemptive because Christ experienced it. Right. And that the cross is Christ entering into all human suffering. Mm. But for for me, I'm trying to figure out, no pun intended, how this all fleshes out. And I'm not saying that there are gradations of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's just that mm-hmm. I'm trying really hard to, like, I wouldn't, I would, I probably wouldn't want to just take Jim. James Cohn's theology and then rework it for the situation. Mm-hmm. I almost feel as if as Latinos, we need to start organically outward because it's not, you're, what you're saying is true. The principle is the same. Mm-hmm. The principle of Christ in solidarity with the suffering of the oppressed. But I think that we shouldn't rush to a one-to-one correlation yeah. based on another theology yeah. that in some ways the way we treat this theologically is going to look different. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I, I'm in that tension, you know, as, as a, as a student of theology, as a, as a Latino here in the U S seeing what's happening to migrants uh, and to dreamers, et cetera, and, and, and being influenced and, and empowered by the work of black liberation theology, how that's, how that's helped me to get language, even to, to, to the point of how even me expressing myself now, using the language of Dr. James Cohn, that's why it's so important uh, for me to, to use it as a lens, maybe, instead of equating it, you know, Right, yeah. like, like maybe that's the tension I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, and maybe obviously I'm doing it injustice because I'm not, I don't have the breath that, um, uh, and that more study, uh, that begs for me to, to articulate better. But you notice that there's this tension with, with Latinos or Latinas, trying to put to words what is going on in our world. Uh, but thank God that we have someone like James Cones that gives us a little bit of language and a little bit of imagination to explore the, like you said, the, the, the complexity of what, uh, of what this all means. Yeah. And, and that's a good wrestling, right, doctor? I mean, as far as 
um, I mean, maybe to, to bring it back to, you know, academic study and that experience of, of finally having to actually wrestle and put into words what it is that we claim we believe mm-hmm. um, and, and be, be in contact with other theologies that are, that are different than ours. Like that's, that's one of the, one of the things that that's been for personally for me, you know, just, just the blessing in, in, in that wrestling to be able to, to say, you know, this is not that, or, or, or to be able to see, you know, for just from hearing, you know, from James Cone, like, would, would you say, is it because may, maybe because our experiences are different where maybe we don't want to can, and I just want to understand correctly. Like we don't, we don't want to put two and two together where maybe the experience of, of the immigrant experience with the yep. experience, mm-hmm. the black, the black yep. experience where their struggle is, you know, coming from, uh, you know, from slavery and becoming a people where they weren't a people before. And, for us is I guess being a colonized people and being a, a people without a, without a land <laughs> like neither you know well, yeah. neither from here nor yeah, there yeah. I mean and, and I think that's part of the tension of like um, the the exodus story is very good dialogically with the black experience and uh-huh. then the cross from that perspective it's it's very easy to make those um, theological connections and I'm not saying that the cross is, is irrelevant to our experience or it's just that I think that we really need to be intentional about sorting through all the narratives of scripture and trying mm-hmm. to have them in dialogue with the nuances of our experience and you're right like some of it some of the reason why I'm having such a problem articulating or I guess what I feel I feel like I'm without words like I cannot do justice I don't want to hijack mm-hmm. another people group's theology yes. and that's, I think that's that's what I'm trying to say is that like I think we're at this point where we need to start ground up context out um in dialogue Mm -hmm. with what we do have in scripture that is i mean i think that's part of what i'm trying to say is of like there's such a a diversity in scripture Hmm. there's no go-to for for just for all people groups i think what we're dealing with is kind of like we're the canaanites at least to certain people's theologies mm-hmm. and, I, and trying oh. to like reclaim who we, who, what our identity is in Christ and knowing you. Know, so that's the tricky part is like having a theology that's not reactive. Yeah. Or in response to the way that scripture is being used now towards us, but finding the strength from within. And I'm, I think what I'm trying to figure out is what is the proper starting point? I have some, I have a hunch. <laughs> the hunch would be, you know, yeah. all the laws about the stranger. 
you know? Yeah. Um, but the way that pans out in, in the gospel is going to look different than the black theology. I, I mean, like, I hope I, I'm not no, no. oversimplifying. I just don't want to make, I want to make sure that I'm not like minimizing other people's experiences. Yes. And I think that's appropriate because, well, not even using the word, because I don't, I don't want us Latinos, Latinas, Latinx to be appropriating black theology mm-hmm. and, and using it in a, in, in mm-hmm. a way that it doesn't, it should not be used. And um, maybe that speaks into how uh, we must be a lot more knowledgeable uh, and in more solidarity with our black sisters and brothers uh, that are doing their work. And because they were a people before they came here to the, the U.S. shores, um, they were they were a, a, a vibrant community in Africa. But because of the violence of slavery, uh, the slave trade bringing them here, uh, there, there was a. There was a, they they had to do with what they had, and for us Latinos and Latinas, like like Juan, you were saying, um, I I think we're expressing um, a, uh, a a a complex conversation right now of U.S. Latino Latina Latinx theology. I think that's what's happening right now because we have the 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 tradition of Latin American theology um, that has come from Gutierrez and has come from Rene Padilla and someone's Escobar, but nothing, nothing that could, nothing at least recently, or maybe you could tell us that is, is can speak to our condition here as Latinos, Latinas, Latinx here in the U S. And I think I'm so thankful that we get to talk to you because you're on the forefront of that. Right. Well, yeah. It's just, I, I guess me being here on this podcast is showing <laughs> that there are gaps, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but I will say that one one work that has really, I guess, pointed me in the right direction, or is point like just within the past ten years, the work of Elsa Thomas. Mm-hmm. It's been amazing, especially when she talks about the Exodus story, but in dialogue with 500 years of conquest. Hmm. And um, the, the, the nature of like, it, it's very tricky because we, the struggle of Iberian Catholicism and the, the Christian identity, like, like in Latin America, but not only Latin America, but now in the United States, so, oh goodness, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's, this is this could be. I mean, this is uh, this is like a entire semester's course and and things that we're dealing with, right? I mean, obviously we're not going to answer it in, in one. Uh, yeah. And the, and that's what's beautiful. It's it's uh, uh, it's 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 definitely perfect. Um, I I would. Uh, I know it's almost it's past midnight. <laughs> Um, so I want to be respectful. We can, I think we can do this for hours. It, this is, this is great. Uh, uh, hopefully, you know, we, we might could have you on again uh, sometime soon and, yeah. and dig, dig a little bit more out uh, of, uh, of, uh, you know, there's, there's always something else to talk about. Yeah. If, if, um, if I would love, if I could interject really quick, 
Dr. Sophia, yeah. could you just give us some, uh, some, something, uh, a, a few words of encouragement uh, for this, for where Latinas and Latinos, Latinx folks find themselves right now that are struggling with these questions, with scripture, with the church, with, with, uh, with what's going on in the world? Um, you know, from you, your viewpoint, what are some, um, uh, what are some things to look forward to? What is, what are some encouragements you could send out to those that are listening? Hmm. Well, we're headed in the right direction because we're asking the hard questions and hopefully we, there are people who don't run away. Um, and I know that I'm in this for the long haul and I know that a lot of my colleagues, like, um, Juan and David, as well as the up and coming generation, we're, we're not going to run away. Um, and we're in this together. Um, but even more so, I keep on thinking about one of the articles that I had um, that we read as a class this past semester, talking about how black theology has reminded the whole body of Christ that any theology that negates the idea that God is a God of freedom is a false theology. Hmm. And then we went over um, the idea when we were reading on Job, or at least I was reading excerpts from Gustavo Gutierrez's um, on Job. There was this idea of any religion that keeps people oppressed basically it's false religion so what what i get encouraged by is that as we embrace our context bringing our questions to the text but have them in dialogue with not only the bible but communities of faith that we will be able to see a little clearly. We, on this side of eternity, we're looking through a glass darkly, mm -hmm. but we focus so much on the darkness, on the dark glass, that we can see only glimpses instead of realizing that we can actually see together. When we actually come together and we're wrestling through these things, the, the role of theology is that we haven't given up the fight. The role of theology is that we're looking through this glass darkly so we can see we can see God clearer together, hopefully together 